this week we're going to be tight. We're going to be. <laughs> You're almost three for three, Dave. Know. You know what happens on that fight. You know what it is. It's you get I'm, on, I'm, I'm on. I'm on pins about you dropping off again. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Cloud Realities, a conversation show exploring the practical and exciting alternate realities that can be unleashed through cloud-driven transformation. I'm Dave Chapman. I'm Shel Kazal. And I'm Rob Kernahan. And this week, we're going to be taking a view on where we're up to with that subject, artificial intelligence. What are the risks of adopting? What are best practices to evaluate AI solutions? And why is democratized AI so important? Joining us this week, I'm delighted to say, is Michelle Zhao, co-founder and CEO at Juji, a company looking at the power of generative AI and cognitive intelligence to auto-generate empathetic and responsible AI chatbots. Welcome, Michelle. Really nice to see you. Can you just introduce yourself and say a little more about Juji? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Juji, which is located in Silicon Valley, California. Uh, Jujin is an artificial intelligence company that uniquely combines uh, generative AI and computational psychology to automatically generate and operate what we call the cognitive AI chatbots. So those AI chatbots are helping organizations such as educational organizations and healthcare organizations to automate their high-touch high-value services empathetically. So, for example, they're used to help prospective students make a decision to enroll in a learning program or help potentially patients for under better understanding their conditions. Hmm. And how long has Juji been founded, Michelle? Juji has been founded for a while, but our starting of the Juji's real actually startup account, uh, company stage, I would say, 2017. You've been involved in a number of the different waves of AI research and implementation over the course of a number of years. So maybe just walk us through that and tell us some of the elements of it that stand out for you when you reflect on it. Great. So uh, by training, I'm a computer scientist. I have always been working in the area now known as human-centered AI which is an interdisciplinary field that intersects artificial intelligence and human-computer interaction. So the idea is always about how can you use computer technologies to better understand users? And then you can create machine intelligence to adapt to help users better. So when I started my PhD study back at Columbia University, so my actually thesis was on uh, using AI to create uh, what do we call it today a data storyteller, right? Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, like think about the physicians, nurses in the hospital, in the healthcare, or maybe network administrators uh, who manage a large uh, network. They may not be a great uh, data analyst. They may not be the great uh, uh, a person who create those very easy to understand the visual illustrations. So the idea then was, uh, how can you use AI to create uh, a data storyteller by automatically ingest the data by understanding users' goals, right? So you can 
it's become a kind of like a, the AI assistant for explaining the data, for actually summarizing the data hmm. for the subject matter experts. And back then, from your question, the AI was a symbolic AI. We didn't have deep learning. We didn't have very large scale training data or uh, very powerful machines, right? So what's uh, and, and when was this, Michelle? Just give us a, give us a time uh, frame. I would say late 1990s, like 1998, right. 1999. So that's a time frame, right? So then when I joined IBM, I built the next generation of the data storyteller. So data storyteller, my version of one was a PhD student, wasn't a really, how do you say, a real-time interactive, so which means is you get a set of data at the beginning, will automatically create a, a visual story, but you cannot interrupt it in the middle of the storytelling. So for right. example, you might say, stop it. I have a new data. I'm, now I'm saying this story. Yeah, so you can't pivot. Data, you right? can't pivot. Can't pivot and react right, to you what you're pivot, saying. Right. Yeah. So then, um, when I when I work when I uh, after I graduated, I joined IBM Research, TJ Watson Research Center. So then I said, you know, I really want interactive, conversational data storyteller, which means it is the users can interactively tell the storyteller what I want. And within context, change the story, right? Mm. Then from that, we developed a, um, a different types of techniques. I remember we used the machine learning then, and mm. it was a very kind of a still data-driven machine learning, as well as um, uh, combining with OR, basically operational research is optimization-based approach, right? To optimize the presentation, to optimize the understanding of the context. So that's why we did, right? right? So then right. quickly forward to probably around uh, 2010, around 2010 time. And then um, I found that is uh, during we were building a storyteller, conversational storyteller, and uh, we understand the user's goals as what data they want to analyze, their visual preferences. For example, some people who want to have overview than details. Other people might want details first then see the overview. So you understand the mm. user's certain preferences and um, styles, but we really did not understand a user's as the unique individual. For example, personality and their cognitive styles, right? We didn't understand mm. that. Mm. So then when 2010 at IBM, then I actually transitioned to IBM Research Lab in Almonden, which is located in San Jose. So I said, hey, can we do something to understand the people as a unique individual, including their mm. personality, mm. right? So that's why... And that would be through, presumably that would be through the interaction of that human being with the system. And uh, actually, no, because the technologies weren't that uh, advanced, that, that were not right. developed at the point yet. So what we understand it is their texts that already produced. For example, their tweets, their blogs, their emails, oh, right? So it's a kind right. of like a communication text there. So then we use the uh, different types of approaches, uh, which we published already, to infer users' personality traits from the communication text, right? So then actually this led to the IBM product uh, called IBM Watson Personality Insights. Hmm. So because of that, we felt like uh, my co-founder, it's also the major contributor to that project as well. And by the way, my co-founder, Dr. Hua Haiyang, who has also psychology background, right? Who's a, mm. Who got a mm. PhD in psychology and computer science. So um, 
we felt like this type of technology should be really in the hands of masses, individuals, right. not somebody who have to understand the code, understand the computer systems. That's why we decided to okay to, to do our startup. But to be honest, we didn't know what to do. <laughs> we didn't know what product <laughs> we create until much later, around the probably 2018. And we figured out, we said, hey, you know, like you said, <laughs> we figured out much. So because we didn't know what to do in the research on, we said, hey, if you have the conversational, because uh, uh, in the first, uh, uh, during the first 10 years at IBM, mm. developing conversational AI, so that, hey, if you, if the AI can converse with the user, you have the data in place already and you can apply our maybe personality analytics right, to it, right. right? So that's why we basically started then to use the uh, personality analytics within the conversation, apply the apply in the conversation to help various, uh, various of the tasks. For example, job interviews, right? Mm. So when you do a job interview, you want to know not just about this person's experience, background, you also want to know this person's personality, unspoken uh, psychological needs, right? So that's right, the one. Right. Yeah. right. Um, before we move on and delve into that in a little bit more mm-hmm. detail, I'm just interested in dwelling on Watson for a second. So just just tell us a little bit about how the sort of organization functioned. And is Watson one thing or was it was it multiple different strands? How did all of that work? Oh, you mean the IBM? So IBM yeah. Watson, it's a big organization within IBM. Thousands of people are there. Right. I mean, yes, I must admit, I, I thought Watson, I, in my head, I thought Watson was all very much sort of focused AI development. But it doesn't sound like it is. It sounds like it's much more multi-threaded than that. So, yeah. So, uh, you're, you're right, in a way. So, Watson, the division, when the division was established, was really the AI is the main thing. So, everything mm-hmm. is done in Watson, I believe, has an AI ingredient inside it. Right. Yeah. Right. That okay. makes sense. So moving on then, lots of companies at the moment are talking about AI mm-hmm. and inferring that they can use it in their business. Clearly, it's it's around everybody's dinner table conversation at the moment because mm-hmm. of the likes of ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. But before we get on to where things are today uh, and some of your views on that, let's just start with a definition of AI in your mind. So there are a number of different grades of AI, I think. What are those grades of AI and kind of where are we at the moment, do you think? Oh, there are different types of AI, right? So from my definition, the, in general, the AI means that uh, you want to uh, power machines with human intelligence. But a human intelligence uh, is very broad, right? So um, you have AI, normally we see AI can understand the language, can understand the images. For example, like the uh, uh, GPT, right, which is the AI powers the very popular application, chat GPT. It really understands language. So this is the one I call it a kind of a recognition, right? So which means it is you have to recognize the pattern to understand what it means. But understanding is kind of a little bit uh, distorted in a way. It doesn't need to understand. It's just the... Uh, recognize the patterns, right? And do something with it. So that's a recognition, AI, recognitive side of AI. And there's mm-hmm. also cognitive side of AI. We call it cognitive AI. Cognitive AI, it's about, like people will often talk about uh, human soft skills. So you have a language skills and you also have soft skills. A very simple example. 
you and I both understand English, but、mm. our conversation still can go very, very badly if both of our social emotional intelligence is very low, right? Right. This is、right. a very unpleasant conversation, very unproductive conversation. Even though we both understand language very same language very well, right?、Mm. So then there's a, as I said, cognitive AI. And there's a rare cognitive. I call it rare cognitive AI. Probably people don't talk about, but just in general. So, which means it is、uh, when you want to power AI, there's a wide range of the human skills you can teach AI. So right now, the very popular because of the great large language models, we can teach AI the very great language skills. Right. So language skills not just about understanding language, also generate responses. And again,、mm-hmm. based on the patterns, right? So that's um just the very simple definition of the AI with the teach machines with hum- basically teaching machines with human skills, and the human skills are very broad. Their language skills, their imaging、mm-hmm. condition skills, and their human advanced human soft skills. Right, and how does definitions like AI and artificial general intelligence fit in with that? Categorization. Okay. So, because uh, uh, currently lots of skills we called about、uh, like language skills, as I said, right? Cognitive skills,、mm-hmm. artificial general intelligence, which means it is the AI has all those skills, kind of like behave almost like a person, right? Yeah. Which means, yeah. as I said earlier, when you're talking about、uh, the AI just as language skills, maybe can be sufficient for certain tasks, but not. Sufficient to become a human's counterpart, because、right. when you、right. human when when you hire, let's say when you want to talk to the real person, you expect much more from this person. And how far off that are we? If you see what I mean, I think we still very far from a general intelligence. Because、yeah. even though the today's very powerful large language models has a very little reasoning out of it, right? Let me just give you a very simple example. We saw, so for example. So let's say you go to the university website. So the person would ask you if somebody would ask you. So why are you here at my website? And you said to make money.、Hmm. And if the AI just by looking at the patterns would think your answer making money why you are on this website completely irrelevant. Why、right. would you be go to the university website to make money, right? But from a human point of view, it's common sense. You want to get an. Human does multiple levels of reasoning. Oh, maybe、yeah. this person meant it is he wants he or she wants to get a better education and learning new skills, so he can get a new job. A new job will help him make more money,、mm. right? So you can think about the multiple. When I explained to you guys, you guys might say, "Oh my God, it's so simple." Yeah, that's、right. humans. But、yeah. uh, if the machines don't see this chain of the reasoning reference, it can't figure out. Right. So, where are we up to, Michelle, at the moment in terms of commercial uses of AI? And obviously, let's use the AI sensation of the moment, ChatGPT, to give us a a bit of a correlation as to where we are and how sophisticated AI really is today.、Mm-hmm. So,、uh, I think、uh, right now, because of the large language models, have really produced some great results, right? So one of the uses is very popular use that you will see maybe hundreds of companies in the space is to use large language models as a tool 
for generating what I call it a static content. So for example, maybe you can go to uh, any of the online uh, applications, ask them to generate uh, uh, maybe the outline of the marketing uh, 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 marketing copy. Uh, and you can you can actually, uh, what I call it, uh, you can edit it, right? You can also enrich it. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. I just recently saw you can also generate uh, pictures. So you can describe in words and ask uh, uh, an app to generate an image, right? So that's one. Right. So this right. is on one side, I would call it uh, generating static content. So in the middle, there are also uh, people have been using a generative model to generate uh, a code. Code can run, computer code, you can run, mm-hmm. right? So then we, uh, like in our work, uh, we also have gone to the very uh, extreme end. It is uh, not just generating code, generating run-level code, uh, which is autonomous uh, AI agent. So most likely you're generating a live agent uh, which can interact, uh, proactively interact with users to accomplish certain goals. You can see mm. the spectrum, right? The static content and the code which can run and then more speci- specialized and more complex code, you can really become autonomous agent. You can use it to deploy it to interact with other uh, users. So it's right. Of, right. So those those agents aren't real. I thought I was talking to a real person. <laughs> so just keep in mind, generative AI, it's like a power source. You can use it for different type of things, but not every organization, everyone would know how to best leverage, use the power source, right? You still need AI expertise. You still need IT expertise to figure out how to use it. It's number one. Second, every organization has its unique, its own unique needs and wants. So you can't just go say, okay, I'm going to put a chat GPT on my website. You don't want to do that. You know why? So for example, in, <laughs> in your company's use case, let's say your company is going to put a chat GPT on your website. When they ask mm. it is, which one's the best consulting company in the world? It will not say right. your company, it will say your competitors. <laughs> would you want yeah. that? You don't want yeah. that, right? <laughs> so that's the whole point here. It is two things, right? Everything you use this one requires customization to the tasks and the context or your proprietary right. knowledge. Doing this kind of a customization often requires knowledge, IT expertise, AI expertise. So I think one trend, like what we have been always trying to do it is democratizing the process. So mm. because this is very worrisome to me too. In this case, if the companies who are privileged have a resource to do, and it will leave many, many companies who don't have the resource, organizations who have a resource behind. So like create, creating what I call it, the AI divide. You don't want mm. that, right? So you want to be, what I call it, it's AI equality. So everybody right. should be able to enjoy and actually leverage and empower themselves with the power of AI. So this is democratizing process is very important. So 
So I guess two things immediately spring to mind on the back of that, which is how does democratized AI actually work? Because the skill level and the bar to entry is really quite high and it's quite difficult. And then within that, I guess, how does a business get going with it? Mm-hmm. So uh, actually, the democratizing AI part, uh, we have lowered the barrier to entry very low now. So right now, if somebody, we call the subject the matter expert, right? So somebody who is a marketing professional, who is a recruitment professional, who is a sales professional, for example, because those professionals, even though they're not IT experts, they can't program, for example, right? But they can use computer tools like uh, PowerPoint, Excel spreadsheet, no problem. So mm-hmm. our goal it is to enable those professionals to use AI tool as if they use PowerPoint or spreadsheet or Word doc. So that's the level mm-hmm. we have. We that, that's our bar, right? So it's not kind of yeah, right. somebody who doesn't know any of computer tools. So that's a bar we set. So second part of it is you ask an accurate question, maybe imply to it. Before any organization or any business wish to adopt AI, as we also have communicated with our clients, it's very, very important to be prepared on a couple of things. Number one, we found that is when organizations are very successful adopting AI, they knew what they want the AI to do. That's a number one, right? Mm-hmm. You have to have a very concrete use case to solve your pain points. Yeah. Yeah, don't use AI for the sake of AI. Right, right. Yeah. Say, some people yeah. say this, you know, I want the AI because everybody has it. Yeah. Always ask a question, what's for, right? Mm-hmm. So what the pain points you feel like AI can help you resolve it? Because this is also what I call the ROI, right? Return on investment, you have to measure it after all those your business. So number one. Second one point, it's really two points, very important. When you are adopting the AI, are you, uh, have you prepared to take care of it? I always say, I think one of the blogs I even said it is, when you adopt an AI, it's like adopting a child. Right. AI, it's right. not perfect. Needs you nurturing. have to give up, really, right? Yeah. On TLC, <laughs> seriously, right? TLC. So because some organizations will say, you know, uh, AI should do everything already. So why should I have a person to check in then I always say, okay, assuming that you are you have adopted the child, would you leave the child actually hungry and not teaching the mm-hmm. child and just completely leave it alone? No, you don't, right? AI, I just want to make sure that people doesn't have this kind of um, a wrong impression of the AI. It is AI is already perfect, right? But you have to teach it, keep teaching it, and keep, yeah. keep it yeah. content up to date, right? So there can be numerous ways you could burn yourself with... AI, if you're not sensible in terms of how you're positioning it, mm-hmm. your example of, you know, it being on a website and recommending somebody else's services, for example, <laughs> which is, you know, suboptimal, let's say, mm-hmm. but it, then also the the development of that AI and the and the ongoing nurture of that AI. Are there any other sort of major risks in your mind in terms of sort of irresponsible or naive use of AI? I, I think it's all related to these two points, right? So your mm-hmm. use case, and the second, it's your, what I call adoption and the nurturing of the AI, right? Think about it. If you don't nurture the AI and your content becomes obsolete, they say, if you really want to do business, people came here, your AI, it's not being 
brought has not been brought up to date, you're not going to do the business. People will say, "Hey, why you're telling me?" Right. So actually, let me just、uh, share with you the real example. And so I went to one.、Uh, let me not just mention the name of the organization, but because I was a customer for this organization, I went to their very famous brand. I went to their website. Their website has all this information about the various types of events already there, right? I just simply ask the say, what's the next event? Because it's already right there. But I didn't say next event. They were the highly advertised for that particular event. I remember it's a musical event. I just ask, so what's the next event? The AI chatbot saying that I'm sorry, I don't understand what your question. What's an event? Phrase. We phrase that. That's really, really not good, right? No, that's no. pretty basic. You lost the、that's、confidence, and you just leave because he said it's right there. I just ask you, the content is on your website, and your AI cannot answer.、Yeah, similarly, I went、cool. to a a company. It's、uh, actually again, let me not name the name. It's a very big telecommunication company, and the company was a, a chatbot was saying that、uh, we had、uh, we offer great coverage, we offer great speed. I just want to know. Actually, it was serious as customer. I wasn't testing a chatbot because I was thinking about to switch to the company. And I was asking, so can you tell me、uh, what kind of coverage do you have right now? Very reasonable question because you told、yeah. me you have a great coverage. Well, it's practically an internet search question, right? And I, I, I I'm sorry, I don't understand. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, wait, so, what do you think are the best practices in terms of adopting AI solutions? Like, how do you evaluate them? And how, how do you put them in to avoid, you know, clangers like the ones you were describing? Yeah. So actually,、uh, we had the spreadsheet to help potential clients to evaluate AI, not just our AI, just in general, because we highly encourage them to compare different AI solutions. Because our solution may not be suitable for every organization, every use case either, right?、Mm-hmm. So we always ask them to evaluate it. On three main things, right? One it is、uh, user experience. So user experience is very important. Like those kind of things,、uh, basically, e- quickly evaluate、uh, whether the frequently asked the questions,、uh, what your what your AI has been already saying to users,、uh, can it actually have that smooth conversation? But user experience also relevant, very directly related to their task. That's why use case, right? So my use case is not about having my AI to tell you a humorous stories, set that expectation, set that actually goal scope. Second part is also very very important time to value. Time to value, which means it is okay. So who can help me to set my AI up, right? Who set it up? How long will it take? Because I heard about some kind of AI project that takes twelve to eighteen months. With the、right. technologies today. I would say twelve to eighteen days is too long already. I mean, twelve to eighteen months is super long, right? So, time to value is absolutely important. So, which means this is going back to my earlier comments on democratizing AI. Which means it is, did you get a democratized AI solution, or you have to have a heavy machinery, hire heavy,、right. actually a team to do this one? So, number two, just to be distinct on the difference between so a, a democratized AI solution would be one that. Comes more packaged, comes maybe slightly pre-trained, maybe comes、Absolutely. with some data, versus like you're building this thing from scratch、yes. in a custom sort of way. 
Very well said. Very well said. So it's a, that's why I call it the time to value. It's a reusable AI. How much is reusable? How much you need to do and how much is already there, right? Number two. Mm-hmm. Number three, it's related to the maintenance. But I want to add one more thing. It is, it's about uh, scope. Can you land and expand? So let's say you are an organization, right? You're using a solution initially, maybe just helps on the marketing effort, helps on getting the clients, right? But the next one, eventually, because AI advances so fast and you advance your organization's goals are always there. And the next one, you want AI to help your employees onboarding or maybe help your customers onboarding. So you wanted to ask when you evaluate the solution, so can you help me to uh, have my next use case, support my next use case? Because you don't want to have so many different types of AI. You have to manage them very differently, right? So it's that the strategic platform can help you for many, many different use cases and how easy you can maintain, how easy you can expand to it. So that's the one that's very important. Right. Yeah, this is also related to democratizing AI too, right? So think about it. If you're using a PowerPoint, okay, today I'm using PowerPoint for my sales presentation. But tomorrow, I want to use this same PowerPoint tool to make a presentation to coaching, to, to coach, to teach my new workers. It's the same PowerPoint. But then you want to ask the same question when you evaluate AI solution. So how easy can I expand that to my next use case, right? Mm-hmm. Can I do it myself? Again, democratizing AI. You say, okay, I have to talk to the company. Company has to tell me. How to do it? That's another barrier to cross. For example, when you use Excel, when you use PowerPoint, you never go back to ask Microsoft, hey, can I use PowerPoint to make a next presentation? Yeah. You do it on your own, right? No, can right, I use right. In, in fact, people do it too much, I would argue, with, <laughs> with that particular example. <laughs> We're worried about that too. We call it addiction, AI addiction. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is, we have some of the customers who do talking to our AI for like three and a half hours. <laughs> so that's yeah. AI addiction. You don't want to do so much. <laughs> so Michelle, I'm interested just as a general point, maybe to bring the conversation to a bit of a close for today. What's the ongoing dialogue in the Valley about AI at the moment? So, you know, what are you guys talking about and what's the what's the buzz about it beyond chat GPT perhaps? I, I think the buzz was about it is uh, this generative AI, it really has put um AI into the mainstream of practical mm. applications. But uh, of course, the very uh, people who really know about the AI also warn the industry and make sure that, like I said earlier, to make sure that uh, there's not just hype there, right? Because like a tool like a chat GPT, it's a independent tool. It's kind of application for you to do certain things. For example, like you said, uh, or do a, a little bit of copywriting and answer certain type of questions that you may don't want to go to search on. So, but uh, uh, it requires a, a much more, a lot of more effort for actually organizations to adopt the AI for practical uses, right? So you have to basically, again, the organizations, uh, when they evaluate a different AI, it, it is the right time. The timing is absolutely great because the technology is already there. But uh, when they wanted to adopt uh, AI solutions, uh, ask these two questions. Um, what I'm going to use it for, how it's going to help my 
business, right? What is ROI? I see. Be as specific as possible. Just like you invest in any tool. There's no magic to it. Second one, so what's my time to value as well as ROI by using a particular tool, one tool versus another tool, right? And who will do that? Who will maintain it? Who will bring it up? And so this is kind of a very important question for organizations to consider before they decide to plunge into the AI frenzy, I would say. So, Xiao, what have you been looking at this week? So each week I will do some research on what's trending in tech. And this week I want to focus on the future of no-code AI. So while more and more businesses need the capabilities to deploy AI to keep up with the speed of change and the disruption, not every business is able to act on it. So with all the talent shortages and the high costs that come with implementing AI, lots of companies are not able to benefit from this powered technology. So no-code AI can be a great solution to support companies of all sizes and can also help to increase the adoption of AI. It makes it easy for all companies to build AI and machine learning models without the need for costly and specialized engineering or data science expertise. It is also much more affordable than custom AI solutions and it can suit various business needs and can also be used by non-technical users. So personally, I don't think that we should see this as a replacement of custom AI solutions, but I do believe that lots of organizations have the same needs or requirements, which can then easily be addressed by using no-code AI solutions. For instance, apps can then build by the business who are using data that is being exposed by APIs, which is then built by developers. So Michelle, a question for you. We already talked about democratizing AI, but how do you see the future of no-code AI? Oh, thank you for asking this question. This is my one of my favorite topics as well. <laughs> and also I wholeheartedly agree with you. No-code AI is not going to replace a code AI, right? You have used code to do a very custom solutions. Mm-hmm. I have this kind of analogy. Thinking about in the 1980s, before the personal computers uh, came to the market, right? So only the professionals can use computers like the uh, PDP-11, like from a DEC and the IBM mainframe 370. But when the personal computers came to uh, a market, then it just opens up the door for so many people who are using the who can use computers now to do very meaningful tasks, right? So I view the no-code AI, it's almost like the ana- analogously to the personal computer use. So which means it is people who don't have IT expertise, who don't have a um, uh, computer science background can create their custom AI solutions quickly, right? And I just wanted to mention that because I got this question before. People always ask, then doesn't mean uh, no-code AI will sacrifice the quality. I said, no, it's actually on the opposite. So I also give another uh, uh, analogy is that uh, like you are trying to build a house, right? You want to hire professionals to build the house versus the DIY. 
DIY is really difficult because you have to understand all the plumbing and nutrition. So the no-code AI, which means it says professionals already build a lot of these modules. It's a house already built. You just look at the turnkey house, just go inside, right? But you can decorate it. You can put a picture here. You can put the furniture there. That's an easy part, right? So that's the whole point about where the no-code AI is the same, very good quality versus you building from scratch. So in no-code AI, there's a very important concept there. It's a reusable AI, which means it is, it's not like Dave mentioned earlier, building everything from scratch in no-code AI. Forget it. <laughs> it says you can never go, you're never going to um, finish that. So no-code AI has a direct con- connection to reusable AI, which means you pre-build many, many AI modules, any intelligence. So the person can just assemble them together very quickly. So this is actually, I want to go back to your, I want to go back to your earlier point it is. So then people said, so then maybe the engineers will, software developers will lose their job. No, 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 no. Completely opposite. Their job is perfectly safe in this case. What it means it is, think about the use case. So let's say a marketing professional who actually uses no-code AI built the AI chatbot for marketing purpose. Let's say uh, to actually engage with audience, to pers- to guide them, persuade them, to figure out various type of solutions, help them make a decision, let's say, right? So because the marketing experts has the domain expertise, how to do marketing, how to do persuasion, so they use no-code AI to do exactly like that. But you wanted to also connect potentially with your backend database, let's say your CRM system. So the engineer would make the connection very quickly because then uh, uh, domain experts like a marketing specialist that can quickly change content of the marketing without bothering the backend engineer. But engineer can do much more. So for example, they can maybe collect the data, analyze the data better, and maybe give the information back to the marketing professional how to you uh, read, maybe how you say, update your marketing messages. It's the integration of the no-code AI with a traditional, I would say, engineering effort. But it makes traditional engineer effort probably in our measurement 100x um, more efficient. And a great solution to the scarcity that we are now facing. Yeah. I think one of the things for me is it's tracking the assembly or this assembly of components that we've seen in cloud and elsewhere where you can quickly create solutions without the need of a depth of sophistication of engineering around that. Right. So that's fantastic, yeah. as you say. Mm-hmm. But also... Putting the power of AI in the hands of a wider group, I'll say it again, always creates more creative solutions. Like interior design, Mm -hmm. the more people who do it, the more variation you get and the more wondrous things that we can, you know, create for it. So you're not just using the domain of engineering to create something. You're allowing everyone to have a go. And I think you get much more exciting answers when you have that um, democratized AI, as we've discussed. Unbiased answers. Right. Thank you, Rob. And also it's a higher quality solution, right? So we have talked to many of these subject matter experts. We call them the supervisor of AI. They would feel very uncomfortable to to go to the engineer. Let's say, for example, the user asks about question about the university program. Engineers do not know about the university programs very well. They know engineering very well, right? But the experts, the learning coordinators, needs to answer those questions. But if you if they have the power to do so, there's 
they don't need to rely on engineers to do that, right? So which means engineer. By the way, engineers don't want to do that either. Engineers, why would I know? How do you help you get a financial aid? I don't know anything about financial aid. I don't know anything about veterans programs in my school, for example, right? But the learning experts, but the recruitment specialists know those answers from their from the bottom of their heart. So that's a big difference. And and the other thing for me is as you say that is making it accessible also drives curiosity where it's a low entry to try something out you don't feel like there's a load of conversations you're going to have to have so it's more likely to tempt people in to have a go Mm -hmm. and therefore they'll get more used to it and they'll build their skills and then going back to the scarcity point it'll grow and grow and grow and you'll get these bigger brighter faster better solutions that pop out the other for instance if you are looking for cheese jokes this could be a great solution rob yeah, it's one way. Get the AI, assemble it together, give you a cheese joke every day. Sorry, Michelle, there's a there's a running theme going on about the fact of my love for cheese jokes in the podcast. But yes, that's and a, your abusive poor old AI. Uh, <laughs> the, it's at the mercy of you and your love for cheese jokes. <laughs> this this brilliant tool lands in my lap, and the first thing I ask it to do is write bad cheese jokes, basically. Yeah. So, so, Rob yeah. nurturing the AI, yes, yeah, exactly. his own way. <laughs> It's a special way. <laughs> so no code AI is quickly growing now and more and more organizations are looking into the possibilities. And like we already mentioned a couple of times, this can really address requirements of many organizations, but also help reduce the need for specialized expertise in this area, which is also very scarce at this moment. Thanks, folks. What an important conversation. You know, it's, I think it's unquestionable at the moment that in the in the world of tech and, and digital transformation, the rise of AI, which it you know seemed like it had been talked about forever, but has just accelerated at such a pace in the last six months is critical for us all to understand. So thank you, Michelle. It has been a real pleasure talking to you. And we end the show by asking our guests what they're excited about doing next. Now that could be looking forward to a new piece of music arriving at the weekend or it could be something that you're excited about doing from a professional perspective so michelle what are you excited about doing next i'm very excited as i mentioned earlier to this conference iui 2023 in sydney australia because this is a a conference that features the cutting edge technologies in ai and human computer interaction so i'm looking forward to all the new research results and new research actually studies. Sounds amazing. And I think you've been involved in organizing the conference, I believe. Correct. I'm a program co-chair, technical program co-chair for the conference. So I already knew some of the papers, but uh, I'm look, I really look forward to uh, meeting the authors and really uh, to see their great, exciting, exciting results. Well, amazing. We wish you all the best with that. I'm sure it'll go terrifically well. And uh, thanks again for joining us for today's conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So a huge thanks to our guest this week, Michelle. Thank you so much for being on the show. To our sound and editing wizard, Ben, and of course, to all of our listeners. We're on LinkedIn and Twitter, Dave Chapman, Rob Kernahan, and Xiao Kizal. Feel free to follow or connect with us and let us know if you have any ideas for the show. And of course, if you haven't already done that, rate and subscribe to our podcast. See you in another reality next week.